Hi, and welcome to the first ever Sega Bits Swinging Report Show. It's the first ever uh, podcast for our brand new site, Sega Bits. Like the old site, which we won't mention, but better, I think. <laughs> I, I agree. Anyway. I guess we could say that. I, I agree. Anyway, um, let's move on. <laughs> We're going to talk about our highlights of the week. Let's get scratching. We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up. Sega games, just keep playing them. Sega! We're back. It's the Sega Bits Winner Report Show. Live. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to the Segabit Swinging Report Show Live. I'm Barry, and this, as you could tell from the beginning, is our 100th episode. Uh, so um, it's been, geez, it's been 11 years since this show started. It has it has changed um, quite a bit. The, the first hosts were Ryan, George, Aki. I came on shortly thereafter, then I kind of took over the show, it became an interview format, we've had many people on, uh, Tom Kalinske, Al Nielsen, Roger Craig Smith, um, I, creator of Toe Jam and Earl, um, did we get the Echo guy? We didn't, we need to. Uh, there are so many people we've had on, and one of them is going to be joining the Three Timers Club, it is of course... Ken Horowitz of Sega16.com. So let's bring him on here to the right of me. There he is. Hello, Ken. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, As I mentioned, you are the Three Timers Club. Um, You edged out Chris Tang, who was on twice. Um, (laughs) I think if Chris actually does more on his fan game than he he's allowed to come back but yeah <laughs> i've won the golden opa opa that's right yeah that's right you know we do have a golden opa opa it's it's a little jpeg that we put on end of the year favorite game um uh articles so uh we've had you on before you've uh written the books the sega arcade revolution um you've also written playing at the next level a history of american sega games um, your current book, yeah, I know you have a copy on hand if you want to hold that up. It is Beyond Donkey Kong, A History of Nintendo Arcade Games. And uh, that's, uh, I, I feel like the, the Sega 16 guy writing about Nintendo, it seems like, what, what well, I happened? <laughs> I definitely got that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, in the past we've talked about your love of Sega, but... Are you a Nintendo fan? I'm a fan. I like everything, but Sega stands uh, head and shoulders above the rest for me. I mean, that's my favorite. But I wrote that book because as a kid in the late 70s and early 80s, I grew up around the arcades. Before I even had a console, I had to go to a friend's house and play Atari 2600. Another friend had a, uh, an Odyssey 2, but I didn't have anything. And so I got my 
gameplay, my video gaming, and when my parents went to the mall and I would sneak away to go to the bathroom <laughs> and I would leave the because I mean, you could do this back in the 70s six, six years old seven years old I'm going right. to the bathroom okay go and then I would leave the store go down the hall into the arcade spend about five or six minutes just looking at the attract modes before okay I gotta get back and then go back uh, and I grew up you know with Donkey Kong and, and Donkey Kong Jr. and Mario Brothers and those great Nintendo arcade games and mm-hmm. uh, you know so where I started writing about Sega because that's my my first love and I've been playing Sega arcade games since I can remember but there are other aspects of that in, that experience as well that I wanted to cover like the the Nintendo games and the book I'm doing now the, the Williams games and stuff but uh mm-hmm. yeah but um I you know I have every Nintendo console I have you know I I love Nintendo as well but but you know, if I have to pick one, it's always going to be safe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I remember growing up, there was no real distinction. They were all just video games. They yeah, were all these, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like Mario, Sonic, Frogger, you know, like you really, they were just, it was no different from like Saturday morning cartoons where there weren't kids going, Ghostbusters, and the other ones go, no, Ninja Turtles. Like it was all good entertainment that you would get. I mean, at, at the very least you would maybe say oh uh, cbs or whatever channel has different cartoons they have a better block but like kids didn't really talk like that um but yeah so when i when i got the genesis i would be applying like nintendo this game is owned by stickers on the backs and i just wouldn't think twice that i'm putting like a zelda sticker on the back of my sonic the hedgehog one it was just like well it's a video game sticker going on the back of a video game what's the big deal um yeah, so uh, so with this Nintendo book now uh, that released a little bit ago, right? Um, uh, last year. Last year, right, right. Um, and I mean, I I wish I would have picked it up and researched before we spoke, but uh, honestly, like your books are like sometimes the backbone of our Sega Talk podcast episodes because you, I mean, of course, there's the very easy to use. Um, uh, is there a glossary in this one? There definitely is. Yeah, yeah, the index. Yes. Um, oh, yes. So we we always turn to the back of the index if we're covering a Genesis or an arcade game. And more often than not, there's information. And a lot of the times, it's information we can't find anywhere else. Like, there are some games that you touch on, even briefly, that no one else is talking about um, on the internet. You know, there aren't interviews, there aren't... There isn't really much research outside of, you know, the gameplay itself. Um, do you, so when you're, whenever you're working on a project, do you ever think, I need to cover this area of gaming because no one else has? Or do you take more of a approach of just saying, I'll start the research and, and what I find is what I find? Well, uh, it's the, the former. I, I approach writing these books from a research perspective, you know, um, I teach research and writing at the college level, you know, um, I'm on doctoral dissertation committee, so I'm very, very involved in the, the actual research process. Mm. And every time I decide to write a book, it's always, I look and see for a gap in the literature, like there's one section of the, of the industry that has not been covered that no one's talked about, you know, like I would love to write an Atari book, but like I have business is fun and a couple other books. And I'm like this, it would be so difficult for me to actually build on what, you know, to say something that they haven't already said much better than I could possibly do because they've been involved in that research forever. 
you know so i look for areas that i can tackle that haven't already been extensively researched and that was one thing that appealed to me about the nintendo books like there are books about the nes and the snes that you could you know you could build a wall with them there's so many but there's no books on nintendo's arcade history which is the that's how i got introduced to nintendo you know that and then the game and watch but but in the game and watch as in when my parents my dad would take me to service merchandise I would when we were uh, in the section where they had that because the service merchants I remember kind of had that like near the jewelry section for some reason <laughs> and so I would look at those in the case and while my dad was off doing whatever he was going to do talking to the guy I would be looking at the game and watches never got to own one because uh, that was a little bit too expensive unless I asked for it for Christmas and, and so I never got one but uh, but that's my that's my introduction to Nintendo the arcade games and so mm. before I, I look at any topic like that, I look online and I ask around to see if there's any project that someone else has done or is in the process of doing on that topic. And then it's a process of determining whether or not, you know, has no one done it because no one's gotten around to it or is the topic not viable? You know, if there's not, not enough meat there for you to actually uh, develop a book, you know, are there people I can talk to? Are there articles like with the Sega Arcade book? That was a much more difficult one than the, than the American book because most of, of the sources and games were Japanese. So that involved a lot of tra- article translation. I was like, well, can I trans- do I have someone who could translate the articles? Are, are there articles to translate? And, and I talked to people and everything, and I was able to, to, to make that happen. But hmm. that's the step. It's like, is this something that's been covered? No? Okay. Has it not been covered because no one can cover it because there isn't enough to say? If not... Then you know that's what really interests me: telling the stories that haven't been told before, or haven't and, really been fleshed out. And do you look at more of a narrative from a beginning to end? Like, do you do you think of someone sitting down to read this book from beginning to end, um, or do you more approach it from like section by section, and then just kind of telling these little bite-sized stories? Um, well, I look at honestly, if you look at the format of these books. They are basically a collection of the articles, formats that I use on Sega 16. Like, they'll start talking about the background of the developer. We have an article series on Sega 16 called Developer's Den that talks about the history of the developer. Mm -hmm. And then the actual game itself, that's a behind-the-design article where we talk about the game's development. But when you have that many games and that big a story, you can put them chronologically and connect them and create this you know, this overarching narrative about like, okay, this is the history from this date all the way to this date, because you, you, that way I think you accomplish two goals, you know, for the person who wants to use it for research, you have the little capsules of games and, and the developers and everything that you can use. Just look in the index, boom, go to the one you need. Right. But someone who wants to know the history can sit and read it from the beginning all the way, you know, to the, to, to the end, um, and, and I don't end, like, you can't end a, a story like Sega or Nintendo because they're still around, right? But, right. But, like, with, with Sega, I ended it, uh, I think both books ended, the, the first book ended with the uh, end of the Dreamcast, right? Because there was no more home uh, American development. Uh, right. To take as consoles. And then the arcade book ends with the Sega Salmon Merger because that's Sega that made all those great games in the 80s and the 90s. That Sega that's when it disappeared and became the Sega that we see today, you know, and Nintendo, of course, when they ex- exited co-op, uh, coin up and, uh, um, 
the legacy of them licensing their their brands for other companies to make co-op games, coin-op games. But that's uh, um, I try to do both of those. And then like with the, with Beyond Donkey Kong, I started with Beyond Donkey Kong, and the new book does it as well. Is that I switched from in-text citations because these these books are also I, I consider them to be research you know references uh, to uh, endnotes, and mm. that way it doesn't uh, affect you know because someone who's not into research and doesn't know about citations and things will might find it intrusive to see those citations in the text. So I right. switched to endnotes so that way the, the sources are there, everything is cited, but it's out of the way so that it doesn't interrupt the flow for the reader who's not particularly looking for that. Right, and and I've seen, I mean, obviously there's so many books out there now uh, covering video games, covering Sega. I feel like in the past 10 years it's been a book renaissance. Yeah. Um, everyone's writing a book. Um, there is uh, that Dreamcast Year One, I think it is, um, which is from more. Into's coming out too, yeah, and that's that's more from a um, UK perspective. Uh, then there are, of course, um, your books. There are the Design Works books, which are more like art books um, that just happen to contain a lot of great interviews at the end. Um, what what led you though to go with more of a uh, textbook publisher like McFarland as opposed to either kickstarting something or treating it more as a um, I don't know like uh, there's those books out there that are a little more I don't want to say flashy but it's more like hey I'm an entertainer this is my fun book check it out it's all the reviews of the games I'm, uh, uh, who who did that one on the NES um, uh, Pat the NES punk like he did a book and so there's a lot of I, I feel like. I'm going to cite your books. I'm going to use your books for research. But then when it comes to those sorts of books, it's more of an opinion piece. Do you just, you gravitate towards this? Do you feel like there's more longevity to this type of book? Yeah. I'm because like I said, I approach it from a research perspective. So, um, I want the books to be used for like, even if, if someone's out there making a YouTube video, and they need information, they can use the books. Mm. If someone is, is doing a, uh, a report or writing a thesis or whatever, and they need sources, they can, even if they don't cite my book, and they can go through the bibliography and get and you know look at those sources and might perhaps find something that they want to use. That's why I always include an index in the bibliography so that the readers who want to know more can go and find those extra sources. But also because, you know, I, I try to keep my my uh, anecdotal experiences out of it because I honestly don't think I don't you know I don't think anyone would want to you know read you know my own uh, uh, personal thoughts you know I, I don't know how interesting that would be uh, right but, but I like to, to to tell the story you know my, 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 my priority is this is something that hasn't been told that people don't know and that people I think people need to know it's a fun story to read so if the story is interesting you don't need me to in, interject myself you know right inject myself in that you don't need me to to, to insert myself into that it, so i just think the story tells itself um a lot of people you know there are a lot of uh coffee table books a lot of books lots of pictures and everything those are really popular some mm-hmm. of them are really really beautiful really great books you know but i i didn't do that because I wanted to do something that was a little different, but also, you know, like this is like they say, write what you know, you know, right. And, and, and this type of research is, is what I know. I mean, I'm not only doing Sega 16 for 17 years and, and 
when I did my own doctoral dissertation and working and research and everything as a, for a living, you know, this is like my my lane. So I didn't want to like you know, <laughs> maybe uh, I'm th- you know one day I'll I'll figure out a kind of book that 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 I don't like. I said I don't I don't know how interesting uh, people might find that. I was thinking about that the other day about maybe like a book about experiences like growing up, like when I got my master system or when. Like when the Genesis came out, things like that. But I, I don't know. You know, I don't know if, if that's something people want to read. <laughs> like, like your a, a biography or something like a gaming biography covering your experiences. I mean, that could be interesting. You've interviewed a lot of great people. Um, I guess the question is, do you want yourself to take over the work? Um, yeah, that, you know. that's, I don't. I don't. I don't know if I'm. I'm. I don't know if I'm interesting enough. <laughs> I mean, that just. <laughs> you know, I. I don't know. I, I, like I said, I, I don't think, uh, um, I mean, I would, I, I have, you know, I could tell the experiences and I could put like a collection of essays into a book and do that, but I just don't know if that's something anyone would really want to read. Have you ever thought of an individual that you would want to focus a book on, um, either uh, written more in the style of like console wars, where it's like a narrative, or written in more in the style of um, your books, where it's more researched and, and, kind of meant to tell these uh, factual tidbits of their life. Not to say that Console Wars is not factual, but it definitely tells more of a, a, a narrative story and takes some liberties, which I know has upset some people. Um, what, what, what is your thought on like a, a person in the industry that you would want to cover? I would honestly, if I could pick one person, I would honestly like to be able to write the biography for David Rosen. Oh, wow. That would be the person. I mean, the man has had. I mean, and, and the thing is, it's not just like everybody associates him just like with Sega. I mean, right. with Sega alone. I mean, he's there from the beginning practically. We're talking what's almost seventy years experience in coin op, sixty years right. experience in coin op. I mean, the man got involved in the fifties, right? I mean, he's been there since, and, and not just the fact that he's been in the industry that long, but like he's seen it. The United States. He's seen it in uh, Japan. Right. You know, he's seen coin op like Chicago and then video game development in the, on the West Coast that or, that rise up in the seventies. I mean, he's seen it all, and I honestly think that that man has to have some absolutely phenomenal stories to tell. Yeah, and he's he's still alive. I don't know mm-hmm. how is he, is he still there. Like can... yeah, yeah. that since he's retired, because uh, when I did the Sega Arcade book, I uh, I got the chance to interview Lorraine Bromley, who's uh, the daughter and granddaughter of two of the founders of Sega. Bromberg, and, um, she yeah. She was actually got me. Uh, uh, I had the opportunity to submit the early chapters on Sega's founding. She actually forwarded them to David Rosen, and he read them over. Wow. To, to fact check them, and and she didn't understand why I was freaking out when she called him uh, uh, Uncle Dave, <laughs> and, and and she like didn't understand why I was freaking out when she told me that you know well, I, I I like that but um I, I figured you'd want another uh, perspective so I forwarded him to Uncle Dave and I'm like Uncle Dave she's like yeah Dave Rose and we call him Uncle Dave and I was like <laughs> I freaked out and she's like um and, and then she she was j- like jabbing at me like well you know uh, um um. You know, I've been in Queen up a while too, and I'm like, yes, I appreciate you, but it's David Rose. You know, I was I was freaking out. Um, but she said that that he and his wife they like to go on cruises and they travel a lot. Wow. 
that's that's I mean that they're retired. He's in his late eighties, and and they're I don't know now you know with the end times apocalypse of COVID, right? That that, that we're still all still here, but everyone's travel plans and routines have been you know so I don't know right what he's doing now, but uh, but yeah he uh, he's from what I understand he's still around and still you know uh, um, all there. Yeah, it's almost like with the with these like these legends though you you got to jump on it even if you don't have a project plan just to sit on an hour-long interview with them so that you have something so when the time comes i mean i i personally in planning for uh live shows like this i was like i was thinking man i need to get tom kalinsky back because he uh was a great chat and then he had that health scare i expected the worst um and thankfully he made it out uh, relatively unscathed, but he's just, he's, he's like one of those guys too, where it's like, they're not going to be around long. Uh, the fact that they're still around is amazing. <laughs> and, and writing this latest book about pinball really drove that point home for me because it's like, um, all the legends, like I was writing about, um, about Williams pinball and like Steve Cordick gone, Harry Mabs gone, uh, um, Harry Williams gone, Sam Stern gone. Uh, Norm Clark gone, like all these legends, these guys who basically created the industry that we know and love, gone. Like David Rosen is like the la- you know he's like the last of a of a dying breed here. Yeah, I mean the, all the others uh, from that era are, are gone. I mean, uh, and then going doing that research and seeing a pictures of him, I, there was one picture and I think I posted it on Twitter that was David Rosen with uh, I forget his first name, Kogan, the the founder of Taito, and. There was someone else. I forgot who it was. But there was like, there were like four of them. And like, these are uh-huh. like industry pioneers. And of the four, like David Rosen is the only one in that picture who's still alive. Unbelievable. Like, I would I just like, oh my God, all those, all those stories, all those, you know, those, those uh, facts and all those, those experiences, all those, you know, gone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I was saying, you know, we, in the past 10 years, we've been seeing a lot more books. Uh, we've also been seeing like, people treating video games as history as the history they are and approaching people and finally talking to them about them um and not only treating games from like the 70s and 80s as uh you know pop culture icons that need to be covered and talked about but we're we're starting to move into the 90s and the 2000s and people are starting to talk about the history of games from then and you know, me thinking, oh yeah, t- like 2005 is not that long ago. It is, and there, there's games from that era that are relatively uncovered. Um, I, I recall I talked to, and man, I'm just blanking on his name right now. But he uh, he worked on Hydro Thunder. Uh, he uh, was one of the original voices of Bubsy. He helped create um, Floygen Brothers. Um, it'll come to me. But he, I, when we interviewed him. He was like, no one has ever talked to me before. Like, no one has ever talked to me about my work like this. <laughs> you know, like, in a retrospective fashion, uh, actually asking, you know, development questions. There, there's there been people who are like, yeah, I, I you know, pioneered um, the, the creator of Night Trap. We had him on, and he was just like, wow, you're asking me questions no one, asked, no one has asked me before. <laughs> and so it's just... It's unbelievable how many people just kind of go forgotten, um, and and not even at the top of the food chain, but like 
or the totem pole, I should say. But like we've had people on who just did some modeling work for World Series Baseball 2K1. Like not a big deal, but the conversations we had were just amazing because I was learning so much about developing 3D models in the Dreamcast era. And no one's really talking about that either. They just think these video games come and go. And it just it's interesting when we reach that point. So with the book you've written now, with um, the Sega Genesis book, do you feel like you would be ready to move into like the Saturn era ever? Or, or the Dreamcast? Oh, oh um, absolutely. Uh, like, that book goes all the way to the Dreamcast, but it only covers, like, the American-made games. Right. So, like, if you want, like, a book specifically on, like, the history of the, the console, I'd like to do that. It's kind of difficult, like, sp- console-specific books like that, because, like, as you said, there are a lot of books coming out that are, uh, that are already kind of doing that, like... Uh, read-only memory and bitmap books are uh, coming out with a lot of great console-specific right. books. Um, uh, but uh, I am going to get my foot in the door there. I've already started working on... Uh, I've got about how, about a, almost a dozen interviews done already up for a book on the Game Gear. Oh, wow. That's that's my next project. Is it going to be smaller? It's going to be Just kidding. Yeah. But if, if, if you read it, and you'll only be able to read it for two hours before the pages go blank. <laughs> nice. No, uh, but uh, that's the next project, and that's going to be console specific. Um, mm-hmm. I already have a publisher, not the same publisher as th- these three books. It's another publisher that, uh, uh, so far, you know, if everything works out, because this was all discussed and worked out uh, a year ago. And that's the reason mm-hmm. why I did the Williams book first, because I had already approached I approached the publisher with that idea. And um, they had a couple other books in the queue, so they told me they had, that we wouldn't be able to start on, until the beginning of 2022. And I was this was at the end of last year, and I was like, okay, that gives me time, you know, to work on this book, and then I'll come back to that one. Right. But I had already interviewed uh, about almost a dozen people uh, for in from 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 Ozzysoft, from Tech Toy, oh, from wow. Sega Europe, from Sega of America, documents from Sega Japan that I had translated. So I already had a good start on that, and I put that because since we we're able to do it uh, get it uh, working for a year and, and that one hopefully will will um, we're trying to get that one officially licensed as well it's, it's been speaking to Sega representatives from Sega in Europe to try and get that um, license so that one will be like the first console specific but, mm. and the reason why I did that is because like read-only memory did a Dreamcast and Genesis bitmap books had Master System and I think they're working on it are going to come out with a Saturn book so I was like well gee you know there's Game Gear, Pico, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are books. And and and, uh, and somebody on uh, Gaming Alexandra posted a picture of, like, Pico in the boxes from the Netherlands. Oh, wow. And I had no idea that it had been released in um, in Europe. Uh, and so that, I found that really interesting. I was like, wow, you know, that, that kind of piqued my interest. Because those are things, like, you don't see any deep writings on that now, now someone might say well who cares about that but in my opinion i do <laughs> everything yeah everything everything deserves to be discussed like exactly. bad games like um somebody uh i don't know if it was on an amazon review or something that somebody uh criticized that i had included for example in the sega arcade book flicky you know right well, who cares about flicky it's like well i care about flicky and also <laughs> flicky is where you know if you don't have a flicky, 
you you don't have Sonic the Hedgehog, right? You know, so Flicky has historical significance, you know, yeah. and uh, and that's something that a lot of people don't know that, so that they look at Flicky and say, "Who cares about Flicky?" And hopefully, they'll read about this and say, "Oh man, I didn't know that about Flicky." Okay, so the game has a place, you know, because Absolutely. every game deserves to be covered. I I hundred. Right, I 100% agree. I mean, not just games, but movies, television shows. Like, just because you didn't like it or it's deemed bad doesn't mean it shouldn't be covered. And honestly, sometimes the the story behind it is better than the the material itself. I mean, uh, case in point, The Room, it's one of the worst movies. The story behind the making of it is amazing. And it's been chronicled, you know. Um, In fact, it's kind of funny. What kind of led me to think, oh, I should ask Ken to come back on, is I was reading a a book from another author who was on the McFarland um, label. And I was thinking, oh, I know this logo. This is from the the Ken Horowitz books. And, And it just got me thinking about bringing you on. But it's just kind of funny because that that book it was about the history of the Puppet Master movies, which are like bottom of the barrel B movie, not even B movie, C movie. These things are filmed sometimes in a week, uh, but I love them, and I, I just got such a kick out of reading the history of them. And then I thought it's so cool to see that author and his book and your books uh, <laughs> by the same publisher, and it got me thinking too, like when you approached uh, and you know. I, McFarland, um, what what was it like? Was were they very quick to be like, yes, let's make a book, or was it more? Well, I didn't really approach McFarland as much as I kind of bumped into them. Oh, interesting. Um, I went to Dragon Con in Atlanta. My brother uh-huh. lives in Atlanta, so every year before COVID, my brother and I go visit my brother. We go to Dragon Con together, um, and we go to the vendors. Dragon Con is four floors of vendors. Just the largest vending mart that you've ever seen. And McFarlane has a booth there. So my brother and I are like, books, let's go there. And we're looking through the books and they have, I noticed they had these really interesting books. Like they had like the, um, the role of Superman in, in, in combating communist propaganda in the 1950s. And I was like, wow, you know, Superman was an icon for, for, for democracy and capitalism. I was like, that's interesting. And they had one about the X-Men and how the X-Men, you know, were, were modeled on the teen uh, issues, issues uh, that teens ha- uh, were first being, you know, that were first being studied and stuff in the 1960s. And uh, stuff that you don't normally associate these, these subjects with. And my brother started to talk to the representative and she asked him, oh, um, oh, it sounds like you, know, so, like you have some interesting ideas. Do you write? And my brother said, no, but he does. And he pointed at me. And, and I was like, what? I was looking at a book and I, I saw them both looking at me and I was like, what? And so she asked me and I told her, you know, that I ran Sega 16 and I wrote articles and stuff and that I had an idea for a book. And she took out a pitch form, a proposal form, and a pen and said, write it down and I'll forward it. And so I wrote it down, you know, the idea for playing at the next level, what I, you know, I wanted to interview developers, you know, because I, and I told them it was, I thought it was viable because I've already interviewed many of these people. I've already written articles on similar articles and I already have, you know, the experience. And then about two weeks later, I got an email from McFarland saying that they had approved the project. Wow. You know, and they wanted, they, they were interested and they wanted to, to uh, a sample chapter and an, and an annotated uh, table of contents so they can get an idea of what I had planned and and I sent them the chapter and I sent them the table of contents and then about two weeks after that uh, they greenlit the project 
That's nice. So, so did they give you like a window of time to release the book, and they were pretty uh, well, flexible McFarlane there? Is is very flexible in that basically they let the author set the the, uh, the you know when they want to hand everything in. There are certain things you have, like you have to have the manuscript handed in. You have to have all your images with all. Mm-hmm. The, if anyone you spoke to or anyone who submitted images, they have to have signed releases authorizing. Ah. You know, if you, you have to have all that. Once you have all of that, you know, then you can uh, submit it. Uh, with the last two books, I've actually started writing the book. And then, like with this latest book, I notified the publisher, the, my editor, and I told her, hey, I'm finishing up a book on this. Are you interested? You know, because now I'm like, I'm writing these books, whether they publish or not. If they don't want to publish it, then I'll just go someplace else. <laughs> because, but I'm writing these books. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, now that I've done, this is the fourth one I've done with them. So they, 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 uh, you know, if your books, if you, you, you work well, you hand things in, you don't have any problems, your manuscripts are well written. If, um, they sell well, you know, they, they, they tend to be more flexible, you know, give you a bigger word count, things like that. You know, so there, there are benefits to publishing with them. There are disadvantages to going with a smaller academic publisher as opposed to, say, a major publisher or another publisher like Schiffer. But, uh-huh. but um, um, I haven't so far, you know, they've been doing uh, pretty well, so I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, and they're probably, they seem pretty receptive to people who are, I wouldn't say like hobbyists or enthusiasts, but like first-timers. Uh, people who yeah. want to try writing a book, like I mentioned, that Puppet Master one, like you know, this guy has has experience writing like websites, just as you did. But you know, it it does not it doesn't seem like a book a lot of publishers would greenlight. To be honest, you know, it's just it's very niche, um, and uh, so I mean, it does. It's no surprise that they would greenlight something like, something like this. Uh, so I really want to check out some of the other stuff that they have. You mentioned a Superman book. Um, that they did. Uh, well, they, they, I don't remember the title. These were books that was, this was 2014, I think. Okay. But like, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of like, uh, of Patrick Hickey Jr. No, I'm not. He has a series called the minds, minds behind the games. And he's oh. done around six of them already. He's done one on Genesis games, one on PlayStation games. And he basically interviews developers and gets the story. Like, uh, say like, for example, Doom. And he'll uh-huh. interview people, uh, one or two people who work in Doom, and give like the story of Doom. And like one book could have uh, thirty games by different developers from different publishers, you know. But they're like, if it was PlayStation, they're all games released on the PlayStation, but they're all from different companies. And so it's, it's a nice variety uh, uh, of games, and it's McFarlane. Nice, yeah. So uh, before we get to your current project, I had a few uh, comments and questions from the audience here. So first up. Uh, we have Elk. He was actually on the previous episode uh, talking Dreamcast with me. He says, I want to tell Ken that Sega 16 was a valuable resource for me when I first got interested in revisiting Genesis over a decade ago. Thanks so much, Ken. <laughs> You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for the support and for uh, reading the website. Um, it's a little more difficult now. Like Basically, Sega 16 is me, full-time, and a couple of contributors who who, who uh, help us out, but um, so I can't like I, I publish you know articles like when you know when we can um, because we don't have the, the we don't have a staff or anything so we don't have the kind of output like other sites might have but uh, right but um, I'm glad that people you know that's what I wanted I wasn't trying to make like a a, a news site or anything I wanted a, a, a 
an outlet. I wanted a a, a repository, mm. you know, of 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 articles, historials, uh, interviews that people could go to to look for information. You know, and and I'm very happy that that's that that people have actually gotten use out of the website. So I thank you oh, very yeah. much for your it's... support. Yeah, that's an awesome comment, Elk. Um, we have a question here from Mike Garcia. This is a question I always hear, too. Um, does Ken see Sega ever making hardware again? <laughs> mm, I don't. I really don't. Um, the, the thing about Sega is that Sega... People always ident- tend to think of Sega as a console company. right? As of today, Sega has officially been out of consoles longer than it was ever even in it. They've been out of consoles since the Dreamcast left. They've been out of hardware longer than the period that they were in it. Yeah. Um, you know, Sega is a coin-up company, primarily a coin-up company. Up until the Genesis really, really took off, they were a coin-up company that did this home thing that made us some extra money. Right before that, it was licensing games for Coleco and Atari and, and, and computers. But um, I don't see them going back. You know, the, the amount of resources, infrastructure and money that it takes now, you know, to make video games and competing against Nintendo Sony and Microsoft it's not a question of quality, right? I mean, although I think Sega's lost a lot of people over the years since the Sony mer- uh, Sammy merger that um, you know, that, that, that hurt them but it's not even a question of quality because Sega still has the quality it's just, Sega just isn't a company financially on the same level that's the reason why sega wasn't able to to out you know the last in the console race because sega just doesn't doesn't have pockets that are as deep as nintendo's as sony's and microsoft's you know right. microsoft could, could sell the xbox at a loss for two years you know and they did it's about they did it they, when the original xbox i mean they took a bath on the original xbox but it wasn't about selling the console it was about establishing a brand so right. like, we're going to establish a brand with this one so that the next one will make us money. Sega couldn't do that. And, right. and Sega still can't. Sega's a small company. I, I would prefer to see Sega focus its efforts on making quality games on all consoles because that way everyone gets to play them. Right. You know, Everyone gets to play them. And um, that's what, to me, Sega, I, I think of Sega, even though Sega was a, a coin-up company, and that's how I, I learned I. You know, was introduced to them, but I think Sega's strength—it's—it's in, it's in its for video games, the consumer market. It's its, it's software. You know, now that they're gonna go back, they, they say it every once in a while that they're gonna go back and look and you know bring back their old IPs and everything. But um, they can do it. I think they're seeing now, like with Streets of Rage mm-hmm. Four, how well that did. They're seeing how well like Monster Boy did, and and, and the you know there's a demand for these uh, older franchises, and Sega has more older franchises that they can re-explore than just about anybody. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, my two cents would be that if you even put all of the financials aside and not having the deep pockets, the mere fact that they would have to completely pull out of all of their agreements and, and their publishing with the three major established consoles to to basically focus on their own would be suicide. And it would be it would it would kill so many working relationships they already have. It would just it would be such a massive shift for the company that I I don't think they would survive it. I don't think their staff would be willing to they, do it. <laughs> they'd also be starting from scratch in, yeah. in a certain aspect because like guys like us, people in the thirties and their in their late forties like me, we know Sega, we remember Sega. Like I have an eighteen year old daughter. 
She was born two years after the Dreamcast was discontinued. She has never lived in a world with a Sega console. And I, and I look at her, I feel, I feel bad for her for that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she can't choose when to be born, you know, but, uh, but so how would Sega, you know, and she has a PlayStation 4, and she has a Switch, and right. she has a Nintendo DS. How would Sega make her say, oh, man, I want that? You know, she started right. to scratch with the younger generation now because they didn't grow up. Like, maybe someone who, uh, when the Genesis came out, they owned a Nintendo Entertainment System, but they had played or, or heard of a Master System. You know, when the Saturn came out, they had played or knew someone who had a Genesis. Right. And now you're starting with, like, Unless you you have an old fogey gamer like you know like me who has these old consoles, they don't know you know Sega consoles. That that that's not a part of their life or right. something they, they're familiar with. So Sega would have to start from scratch with them, and that takes an enormous amount of marketing and enormous amount of resources that I don't think Sega has or is going to be willing to 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 dedicate to that. And I don't right. at this point I really don't see why. You know I think they're better off just just taking those games and. You know, they, they, they have none of the, the, the cost of, of, of running a hardware platform and, and mm-hmm. the, the overhead of, a pl- of maintaining a platform and retail and all that stuff. And they can release on the Switch and they can release on Steam and they can release on the PlayStation. And they hit all, every sector. Right. You know? I mean, we, we as fans, older fans, at least can be happy that they're releasing these plug-and-play consoles now that are fairly oh, yeah. well put together. Um, great selection of games. I mean, Astro City Mini. Yeah, to me, that's (laughs) the closest I think we're going to get to new Sega hardware because it is new Sega hardware. I mean, they don't technically use all of the resources they had back then, but, you know, they use their connections through Sega Toys, which I think was genius. I mean, it's there. They have manufacturing. They have the, the people who can build these products. So they're not really starting from scratch. They're just using the resources they have to make what they made. And it's just... It's it's such a fun celebration of um, just their arcade history and all the little add-ons. I've got the little stool sitting here next to me. I've got... I don't know if you've picked this up. No, I saw that you posted that, and I wanted to know where you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I got it um, through the, the Eb, Sega Eb10 store. They were discounting them. I don't know if they're still discounted, but I think they're trying to move them. So I used a uh, proxy service. It wasn't that much. It was like 30 bucks or something. Um, but it's just kind of fun. But and and to me, if they keep keep that up, I I all for it. I'll support it. I just hope that they do more worldwide ones because after the Genesis, uh, it was Japan only for that, and it was Japan only for the Game Gear Micro. Which you know, yeah. over over here uh, in the West, where all these people are complaining. Oh, it doesn't have good games. It's too small. I'm like, you're not even getting it. So I don't know. Um, but. Who knows? Um, another question I had here before we move on to uh, your current project was from Raw Retro. I'm just going to paraphrase this. So he's he's talking about what your thoughts are on that Sega and Microsoft Super Game announcement. Did you see that? I heard of it, but um, I don't know the exact details of it. I'm not yeah, exactly, uh, I guess the most simple way to put it is... Uh, Sega and Microsoft are working together to use Microsoft's um, cloud uh, platforms to help in game development. Um, and so I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I think people hear Microsoft, they think Xbox. So they're probably thinking, oh, it's a big Xbox exclusive. 
But, I mean, as we've seen with the Sega Dreamcast, they'll slap the Microsoft Windows logo on the front um, yeah. just because they're using Microsoft technology. So, um, I mean, I, I I don't think it's favoritism. I don't think it's them making any console exclusives. Microsoft um, has other businesses that aren't console related. Right. So that could be something that another... another Sector, sector of Microsoft's empire, right? That has nothing to do with Xbox, right? You know, that that uh, that Microsoft can make money off of, and and you know, it's not going to. It's like I said, Sega's not a console competitor, right? So it's not something that might even be considered by them to be direct competition or a problem. But like things like that, I think are what's going to keep Sega. Uh, it's going to keep Sega relevant. It's going to keep mm-hmm. Sega, um, you know, in the public eye because those kind of partnerships are going are high profile, right? And not only that, but like Sega, if the partnership with Mark, partnering with Microsoft, you know, like they did with the Dreamcast, there's an aspect that would cost them a lot, probably a lot more money for them to do it themselves, right? You know? And so they can partner with somebody who can do that for a lot less money and probably in a better position to do that and more quickly than they could. And and that helps, you know, anything that's going to keep them in the black and it's going to keep them, uh, you know, in a public eye where they can sell their games. You know, I support that. Yeah, support absolutely. That. And I mean, have, the, the Sega we have today is not the Sega we grew up with. No, but I will take it over. No Sega at all. You know, it's <laughs> exactly. Good, it's a good Sega. I like Me it, too. you know, and so anything that keeps that Sega around and happy and healthy, I support. Yeah, I, I think the the whole Microsoft announcement is more for a different industry and a different group of people than the console gamers. It just they happen to see Microsoft and they immediately go to Xbox. I think things that are more targeting like general audiences are like their uh, Paramount uh, partnership for the Sonic movies, um, putting Sonic in Fall Guys, putting Sonic in just about everything. Like that seems to be what they've kind of been embracing is to do a lot more crossovers yeah yeah uh so um before we close things out i want to talk about your current book um it do you have a title for it Uh, i have a working title i have this little superstition that it's bad luck to work on a book with no that has no title even if it's (laughs) you know uh uh the adventures of just i have to have something on the front page otherwise i just feel wrong you know um Right. The working title I have right now is The Games That Made the Industry, which is the slogan that Williams... The book's about Williams, the history of Williams Electronics, uh, Bally and Midway, but Bally and Midway after they were acquired by Williams in 1988. Um, so the book starts in 1943, the founding of... It uh, talks a little bit about the history of pinball, talks about uh, the, the founding of Williams and Williams' history, all the, the pinball games, you know, they entered a solid-state pinball the start of its video game division, the development of Defender and Joust, Robotron and all that, all the way through the acquisition of Bally and Midway in 88, all the way until it left Coinop, when Midway left Coinop in 2001. And so, like, there's... And I have a picture that's going to be in that first chapter to show uh, whether the, the title is used or not. But that was, like, the sign outside the main office said, we make the games that made the industry said Williams Valley Midway, so I'm using that as a uh, working title of the games. I mean, the industry, a history of Williams Valley Midway. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I want to pick that up. And I'm, I'm here in Chicago, which is kind of like 
mm. pinball capital. Uh, that's that's coin up central. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I actually when I first so I went to school out here um, about over 10 years ago and then I moved to Philadelphia and then I moved back here and one of the first things I did now that I had a car and I could go wherever I wanted to was I went out to uh, the suburbs you know way way out and I was just driving to all these addresses that I would see on the back of like video game boxes and I'm like there's the distribution warehouse and there's there's like where did I go I went to Namco which is now I think gone out here or they're doing something but uh, I went to the Sega Amusements place, which is now called Play It Amusements, it's like a rickety little building. Um, but it was just kind of fun to like have something video game related, tangible there in front of me. And and I think the coolest bit was the um, the Namco building with the uh, the loading docks, and it looked like at night it looked like the backdrop for like a fighting game. You know what I mean with like the logos. <laughs> On, on there but um yeah we had a pac-man uh barcade which sadly went away level 257 i think it was oh. um but yeah so do you have any plans on like coming out to uh america the chicago area and like doing some on the ground research well I, that's why i wanted to go to to pinball expo this year i wasn't able to because i wanted to uh like I said, there were there were there were only a couple this year. There was like Pat Lawler, George Gomez, and I think Brian Eddy. A couple other designers were there, but I've, I'd spoken with them. But like next year, um, I w- I'm definitely going to go because that working on this book has already like opened doors for books on other uh, pinball publishers like Bally, Gottlieb, um, and Stern. Um, so. So I definitely plan to go to Pinball Expo uh, next year. I went to the when I went to the Midwest Gaming Classic in 2018. A friend of mine and I were so close. Like our flights got delayed because of the because of snow blizzard. So we had to stay an extra day. And we were this we were sitting there over lunch, like seriously considering renting a car and driving out to Chicago to go to Galloping Ghosts. <laughs> but it's like we're like the drive there and the drive back. It's like it wouldn't be enough time and and so. But like okay, if I go to uh, Get, uh, Pinball Expo, I'm going to Galloping Ghost. That's Absolutely. like on my, on my list. Absolutely going to go. Yeah, I, I got to say that's been the hardest thing with the pandemic. I'm stuck at home. I live 10 minutes from the Galloping Ghost. Oh. And I mean, up until maybe the last few months, I've been comfortable going there with a mask. But, uh, you know, at, like peak, it would be like, oh, I want to go, but I can't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they've... That that is like that is heaven if you're a video game fan if you're an arcade my, fan. My brother and I last year uh, were going to go to Gen Con, and because for his 50th birthday, we've been wanting to go to Gen Con since like 1982. Since wow. we used to see the ads like in the back of of first edition Dungeons and Dragons manuals, my brother and I bought the plane tickets. We had the hotel reservations, everything canceled because of COVID. Yeah. So that was fun. I was going to go to the Strong Museum this summer. To do some research for this book, you know, that kind of fizzed out too because of because mm. of COVID is like. So I told my wife, you know, I, I, those 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 trips aren't canceled; they're just postponed. You know, and I <laughs> plan to go to to the Strong Museum and but but the uh, Pinball Expo, like I said, and next year I plan to go to the Midwest Gaming Classic. Next year, those two are definitely going to happen. Nice, nice. That's really exciting. So. Um, in your research with the Bally Midway book, obviously this is a Sega-focused uh, podcast. Did Sega ever c- 
come into play in any of the the research you were doing in relation to Belly Midway? Was there any any crossover with those companies? Uh, actually, there was. When Sega in the 1970s was looking to try and get an in in the American gaming market, uh, Sega actually was looking to buy Williams Electronics. Wow. And so you had negotiations going on. Um, I can, I do believe I have like a, I actually have the, the manuscript. I was working a little bit on it uh, earlier. In 1975, yeah. Um, it was looking to expand its North American manufacturing process, and Williams had expansive facilities in prime locations for East Coast distributing. So there was uh, like an agreement principle. Williams at the time was opened by owned by Seabird a bigger company. And uh, Seaberg would get 20% ownership of the Sega Williams merger, a loan to pay its debts, and uh, Sega would get uh, basically, boom, instant North American uh, um, distribution and manufacturing facilities. Wow. But it didn't work out. you know. And it would have been interesting because if that was 1975 and that had worked out, could we have maybe have seen like Defender with a Sega logo? Robotron yeah. Joust with a Sega logo? <laughs> You know, and so that's true. It, it's and that that was something that I, I was really, really surprised because I had known that 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 Williams had, um, um, you know, there was a talk up with uh, Williams and Bally were, were going to Bally was going to buy Williams and that didn't work out. But uh, when I saw like Sega, Sega, that would have been, you know, 1975. And of course, since that didn't work out, then a couple of years later, Sega went and, and bought Gremlin. That's right. And that's how we, you know, but uh, it would have been interesting to know what that meant to see Defender or Robotron with the Sega logo would have been incredible. So uh, you mentioned Gremlin there. I've, I've been always curious. So the Sega Frogger machines, did Sega have any ownership of Frogger? Like what, what was the story behind that? Why was Sega's no, that, name? That was, that was license. That was like uh, Pac-Man okay. and Ballad. Okay. Um, basically, the story behind that is, is an interesting one. Um uh, I spoke to the person who, who pushed for that to happen, Elizabeth Faulkner. And um, as the way she tells it, uh, that was at a time where games like Frogger were considered like like girl games. Oh. And there wasn't really much interest, much interest in that. You know, They were more interested in publishing like space games, shooting games, you know. And she pushed. And she basically, you know, made the argument like, Hey, if it doesn't sell, then you know you shut me up. But if you if it does work, then you know you make money. And she got them to green light it. And she had they basically green lit it, but in the sense like, okay, you're here, and the ROMs are going to be delivered a uh, hundred miles to the north. Go get them, you know. And so they like basically said, you want to do it, make it happen. Right. And uh, it happened. You know, like Frogger is a. Uh, you know, a classic. It's the same thing. Like, but see, that, that goes back to what we were talking about at the about the beginning. How, like, you know, you you had a Pac-Man lunchbox and you had a Donkey Kong T-shirt, and they were all just video games. Like at right. that time, you nobody know, like when you're eight years old, you don't know about licensing. You know, I thought Pac-Man was a Bally game, and I thought that Frogger was a Sega game. Right. You know, and then when you get older and read about this, you're like, oh, there was licensing. Oh, so Pac-Man was an Amco game, but Namco didn't have any way to distribute or manufacture the game in the U.S. So it licensed Bally went to an agreement with Bally Manufacturing so that Bally can manufacture and distribute in the US and that's what Sega did with Frogger um, that was a game that was like a, there was a whole bunch of like these companies would send these videos VHS uh, 
cassettes with with uh, pitches and promos, uh-huh. and and the company would re- look through those and then pick the one that they thought would work. And so she was going through supposedly these uh, uh, the archive, which was like a broom closet where they just tossed the cassettes, and she found the Frogger one, and that's the one uh, that she she pitched. But uh, it was an uphill battle supposedly to get Frogger green lit. That's amazing! Wow. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that. That's helpful. Um, so this Bally Midway book, when can we expect it to be releasing? I will be submitting the manuscript to the publisher at the uh, by next month. Wow. And so, God willing, I don't know what they have in their queue, like how many more books are ahead of me, but it should be out hopefully by summer of next year. Nice. Summer, early fall, if not summer, early fall. You're a machine. <laughs> I swear. Like my, my brother was telling me, because my brother has, has, does some writing too, and he's like, uh, um, you know, he said I was the Stephen King of, of, of video game books, because like Stephen King puts out a book like every three months. Right. You know, and it's like, but it's like, I can't, I have the idea in my head, and I can't just put it on a shelf, because it's it like, it nags me like, you've got to do this. You know, first of all, you got to do this before you forget and the idea just disappears or you got to do it before somebody else gets it and then you're going to sit there and go man I had that idea I could have done right. that you know so it's like it just nags in my head and so it's like I have to write to get this out but every <laughs> time I do when I finish there's already another idea taking its place you know and so I just it's, it's and, and so now like I enjoy it so much it's like honestly I've, I'm very thankful very grateful that people enjoy the books but I just love writing them so like you know I'm going to write them whether they sell it or not. I'm going to write them you know, because I just love telling these stories. I love speaking to these people and getting these stories and being able to, to put all this together and, and step back and say, wow, you know, look, that's, that's, I think that's a, a quality piece of work that people can use. You know, maybe t- somebody will come in the future and write something that will completely blow this away. But I'd like to think that, you know, that this was a step mm-hmm. you know, towards that goal. That they could use, and if it does that, then I'm completely satisfied. Don't stop! Don't stop! <laughs> people Can't like stop me need stop. you, <laughs> exactly. So, what's the best way people can support you? Uh, is it visiting Sega 16? Uh, is it clicking on a certain link? Is it buying on Amazon? Like, what's the best way to support you and your writing? Um, well, buying buying the books like that—that's always. Um, uh, you know, Kindle, physical, however you want to do it, whatever is best for you. Um, leaving an Amazon review is is the best. Um, somebody recently left an Amazon review for uh, the Sega Arcade Revolution, and I don't think they actually read the book because, like, they said that the book had no research and that it was just uh, uh, excerpts from articles from video game magazines. Like, the person has no idea how research works. But, um, <laughs> but. The more reviews, you know, I think it's if, if a book gets 50 reviews, then it, it like they, it goes up a level on Amazon and it gives it more visibility. And ah. so I would like, um, you know, if you bought bought the book, to please leave an Amazon review. That helps immensely. And, uh, you know, continue to read Sega 16. Like I said, I'm um, our art output isn't what it once was because it's just really me and a couple of people now part time. Um, and so um, I've been translating. I, I don't speak Japanese, unfortunately, but I do speak Spanish. And so uh, I've been uh, translating a lot of articles that have to do with Sega Spain, uh, Sega South America, interviews, uh, putting them up as part of our classic interview series. I did one last week, and I have about three more uh, that I'm translating. 
Um, and so if you enjoy that kind of content, just, uh, you know, uh, send me a, a message, an email, um, through the contact form at Sega 16 so that, uh, or just on Twitter or on Facebook, Sega 16. And, awesome. um, I'd be, uh, you know, cause I, 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 I hope that people enjoy, you know, um, that kind of content. I just, anything that I think people would like to read, I'm going to either write or translate or try to get out there because, um, I, I think all those stories deserve to be told. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Keep it up, Ken. We need you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Big fan here. So, um, thank you again for joining us on our 100th episode, your third time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I was and, very, very happy to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't, our output on these aren't as fast as they used to. So maybe episode 102, you'll be back in like six months to talk. <laughs> anytime. Anytime you want. I'm, I'm ha- I'll happily uh, come back. I love doing these. Awesome. Well, Ken, thank you so much. Again, the site is sega16.com, and you can check out his books on Amazon. Buy them. Leave a review. Uh, They are fantastic, and be on the lookout for that Bally Midway book. Uh, So, again, you can check SegaBits out on Patreon. You can visit our website. You can watch our shows. We have Sega Talk coming back this week. We are going to be talking. We already recorded it. We talk about Dreamcast controllers. It's more of an open discussion. We run through the different variants. It's a looser show. It's not like one of our more researched shows. If you like that, you can look forward to the episode. After that, I'm going to be covering the Space Harrier sequels, including the uh, 3D game Planet Harriers and things like that. So lots of fun stuff on Segabits and lots of great stuff at Sega 16. Um, check it out. They got a Mr. Bones article up there. I see it on the front page right now. All right. Well, thank you again, Ken. Keep up the great work and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Take care.